The story of Achilles and Patroclus. The bodies of two warriors lay on the beach. One was raised up into a position of honour. The body of Patroclus lay on top of a well-built wooden bier. Hector, Prince of Troy, had stripped him of his borrowed armour when he killed him, but the Greeks had rushed to replace it and give him weapons and shields, such as they could spare, to accompany him into the afterlife. The body had been roughly washed in the salty sea, anointed with oil and laid out with care. His long warrior's hair was fanned around his shoulders. He had been wrapped in a fresh tunic and his own armour returned to him, hiding his mortal wounds. The other lay below the first, a mangled heap of discarded bones. Hector had not worn that borrowed armour for long. Achilles had come back into battle, finally. He had let go of his feud with the Greek captains, had chased Patroclus' killer around the walls of Troy, and finally had taken back his armour and taken his enemy's life. He had watched Hector's soul leave his body in a puff of air, had seen it fly away, though not down, not to the underworld, not yet, not while his body remained above the earth. But it had not been enough. Staring down at what used to be Hector, Achilles had expected to feel some kind of satisfaction. Surely killing Patroclus' killer would start to heal the gaping hole in his insides. Time had stopped and he could not hear the cries of either Greeks behind or Trojans in front. The sound of horses whinnying and the drums of war were muffled. He stripped Hector's body of the armour Patroclus had borrowed and thought that somehow he could take back something of what he had lost by cradling it in his arms. But it didn't work. The hole was still there, he did not feel any better. Nothing seemed to have changed, even though Hector was dead and Patroclus had been avenged. What more could he do? It was not enough. Clearly it was not enough. What more could he do? Through a red haze, Achilles had tied Hector's body to his war chariot. He had climbed in and spurred the horses to run as fast as they could around and around the wretched walls of Troy. He could feel every bump and grind as the body smacked against every rock, stone and hillock along the way. Without looking back, he knew that the corpse was being slowly drained of what blood it had left, no longer flowing but forced out by the very earth itself. He could hear the snap and crack of bones as the dead man did his last terrible dance across the rough ground of the battlefield. On and on he went, but no matter how far or how fast he drove, he could not plug that terrible chasm inside himself. And so now, here they were, both men lay in front of him. Both bodies were entirely his, stretched out on the beach while the waves lapped slowly against the edge of the bier. Achilles could hear the men muttering behind him. Patroclus had been dead for two days, Hector for many hours. The bodies were decaying. They would start to smell. They needed to burn or bury them. Finally, Thersites approached their leader. Standing deferentially just behind him, and out of range of his weapons, the soldier cleared his throat in a pointed way, and offered up a careful, My lord? Silence. My lord Achilles? 
Thucytes said. He glanced once more towards the bodies. Perhaps, should we... Shall I ask the men to start digging, sire? Digging? Achilles' eyes did not leave the corpses, but he seemed to have heard. Yes, sire. Dig in the grave, sire. Or would you rather we fetch two urns? Graves? For whom? Thucytes hesitated. Was it a trick question? He decided to carry on as if the question had not been asked. Lord Patroclus' pyre is ready to light, sir. Perhaps we should return Prince Hector's body to his own people? Finally Achilles turned and there was cold rage in his eyes. For a moment he did not speak. He seemed to be struggling with what to say. His hand went to his sword as if he would strike Thersites down then and there. But he seemed to think better of it and barked out instructions instead. Have Lord Patroclus returned to my hut, he said. Leave it, he gestured to Hector's crumpled remains, where it lies. Sir, trembled Thersites in confusion. Now! Achilles' anger was unleashed again and he drew his sword and flung it to the ground, then sat heavily down in the sand and wept. Thersites backed off and relayed his orders to the men. Put it back in his hut, said one of the soldiers, unbelieving. Yes, came the short reply. Volunteers? Unsurprisingly, there were none. Right, you, you and you. Thersites gestured to three men at random. With me. The four approached the beer, holding their noses and trying to hold their breath as best they could. After a minute or two, Thersites' desperate lungs gave way and he sucked in a deep breath of air and... nothing. He could taste the salt of the sea and the grit of the sand, but not the oh-so-familiar stench of death and decay. Confused, he sniffed at the air around the beer, but still, nothing. He reached out to touch Patroclus' hand, wondering if they had all made some terrible mistake. The hand was stiff and cold, and had the familiar feeling of corpse flesh, but no more than that. It certainly had not putrefied the way a body should after two days. It's all right, men, he said quietly. You can breathe. They looked at him in confusion. What is it? asked one. You think I know? We've got our orders. Be grateful and get moving. They heaved the body off the bier and made their way slowly across the sand towards Lord Achilles' hut. As they passed the prince's corpse, Thersites gave it a small nudge with his foot. No smell was coming from the thing that had been Hector either, and the wretched limbs were still hard, though a more definitely dead thing he had never seen in all these years of war. Thersites shuddered. When they finally reached the hut, the four men dropped the body quickly onto the Lord's rich rugs and fled back to the fire and the earthly certainties of wine and meat. All was quiet in the camp. The fires were dying down, the men had stopped singing, and everyone had returned to their huts. The muffled sounds of two people loudly enjoying each other's company in the next hut drifted across the night air, while the sea continued to wash lazily against the shore and the cicadas chirruped. But that was all. Achilles lay awake. 
the body of Patroclus lay beside him, not dumped on its side as the blasted men had left him, but laid out again. The arms were too stiff to move, but he could at least be lain on his back. Achilles lay against Patroclus' side, as he had done so many nights before, but the cold ice of the corpse was a constant reminder that all Patroclus' warmth and love had been lost. Sometimes he even tried to embrace it, his arms aching to hold the other, but the sharp, hard cold of Patroclus' dead flesh made him recoil. Eventually, Achilles' eyes closed, and he drifted into a doze. Almost immediately, the image of Patroclus stood before him. He looked just like the body beside him, wearing his own armour once again. Achilles reached out to touch the body's hand, and the image in front of him held out its own hand towards him. Achilles! Achilles! cried the vision. Is this real? mumbled Achilles in confusion. It's as real as anything else in this hellhole, said Patroclus, and it was his own wry humour and dry tone. Have you forgotten me already, Achilles? Forgotten you? How can you say that? cried Achilles, gesturing to the still body beside him. I remember everything about you, your smell, your kiss, the way your hair looks when you wake in the morning. I miss you. His voice cracked and the tears came again. You are neglecting me, love. You never did in life, but you are now in death. How could you be so cruel to leave me out in the cold? What? Achilles wiped his arm across his eyes. It's been two days and still you won't bury me, cried Patroclus. I'm trapped in this netherworld. It's cold and dark and I can do nothing but wander around this beach. I can't drink or sing or feel the warmth of the fire. What's the point of existing without wine, food and friends? I can see the river and the ferryman and I've tried to cross, but they won't let me. The other dead, they push me back and the ferryman won't take his coin. I'm not one of them, I can't be one of them until I am safely underground or burned up and my ashes sent up to the sky. Achilles gently stroked the hair of the body beside him. Do you want to leave me so badly? he asked quietly. I have already left you, replied the ghost. I can do nothing here, I am nothing here, shapeless and empty. The figure knelt down by Achilles and reached out a hand to cup his cheek, though Achilles could feel nothing. Please, please let me go. This is torture, this nothingness. Let me pass over with the others. Achilles nodded, barely. You must let him go too, said Patroclus, stepping back. No! Achilles rose in anger and moved to the hut's door, looking out at the bones of Hector lying on the beach. Yes! Look here! And suddenly Achilles was swooping above the camp and could see a bent figure dragging a small cart through the quiet huts. That is old King Priam, said Patroclus, pulling them both back to the hut. He has come to beg you for the body of his son. No, repeated Achilles. Hector's soul can wander in the shadows forever, and old King Priam too if he comes near me. They must pay. For what? War? War is war. People die. He killed me, you killed him. Soon his brother will kill you, and another Greek will kill him. 
and on and on and on until all mankind has killed each other. Will you leave them all out in the cold? Achilles did not know how to answer, but Patroclus had not finished. You are going to die soon too, he said. You have killed their prince. Neither the Trojans nor their gods will forgive you for that. You will be famous forever, but you will never go home to your father or give him grandchildren. Burn me, he urged, and then when you are dead, have them burn you and mix our ashes together, and then we will never be parted again. Achilles nodded dumbly. Patroclus' image seemed to be fading. He looked out towards the camp. The old man is coming, he said. Be kind. Patroclus! Achilles reached out his arms to embrace Patroclus, who reached back, but their arms passed through one another like water, and he faded away. Achilles started awake, sitting up straight among the rugs in his hut, Patroclus' inert body by his side. He wrapped his arms around himself tightly, trying to fill the emptiness, but all he could do was rock himself back and forth and press his arms across his chest until they hurt. My lord, Achilles. The voice outside the hut was trying to sound hesitant, polite and delicate, but it was a voice not used to sounding any of those things. It was a voice usually used to give orders, but broken and humbled. Come. Achilles choked the word out against the bile that rose in his throat. The door of the hut was pulled open. The old king stood outlined against the light of the moon over the sea. He was alone, with no bodyguard, no retinue, not even a manservant. Perhaps he did not want to risk the lives of anyone else on this fool's errand. His glance took in the body on the floor, his nose wrinkled at the expected smell and the surprising lack of it. Then he steeled himself and stood briefly tall. Like an ancient tree, Creakily he moved himself down onto his knees and finally bent his head to lie prostrate on the floor as Achilles stood up to meet him. He reached his arms forward to grab Achilles around the knees and spoke into his robes as they fell down around his face. Fifty sons I had when you Greeks landed here and attacked our city, he said, and his voice was commanding and broken at the same time. Now... I have nine. You have killed the best of them and doomed our city, which cannot stand without Hector to defend it. The old man reached up and gently kissed Achilles' hand, which hung limp by his thigh. And now I do what no other man on earth would do. I kiss the hand of the man who killed my son. Both froze for a moment, as if posing for a tragic painting to brighten the wall of some luckier lord's home. Think of your father, Achilles. He lives in hope of seeing you safely home again. I have no hope left. All I ask is the body of my son, so I can take him home. My father will never see me again, said Achilles. For a moment, all the anger he had felt for days flared up in him 
and he thought of bashing the old man's head in right then and there. Then, just as suddenly, all his anger left him entirely. It was as if he had felt so much anger that he had used it all up and could never feel the emotion again. Perhaps he wouldn't. Help me carry my companion out to the pyre, he said suddenly, and then take your son. The old man's knees creaked as he stood, but he dared not refuse. He took Patroclus' feet while Achilles wrapped his arms under Patroclus' shoulders. Together they heaved the body out across the beach and, grunting, hoisted it onto the funeral bier. Priam took a still glowing torch from beside the hut and handed it wordlessly to Achilles. He had expected the spray from the sea to make it difficult to light, but one thrust into the pyre and it was ablaze. Achilles watched as the flames licked around Patroclus' face, lighting up his hair and making it sparkle like the stars. Priam saw his son's body lying by the pyre. He started towards it, expecting a lonely and difficult job, but Achilles moved over and took hold of the mangled body himself. Priam had a small cart waiting. Achilles dropped the body into it, but not without respect. Both became aware of a small group of men watching them in the growing firelight. There will be a truce for twelve days, said Achilles. Both sides should bury the dead men lying between our camp and the walls, and these lords should be honoured with full funeral rituals. You can guarantee this? asked Priam. The lords will listen to me, Achilles said confidently. He looked down at what he had done to the dead Trojan prince. "'You are not yet out of sons,' he said quietly to the old king. "'I do not know who will win this war, but you will have vengeance on me for this. "'Perhaps that is a good thing.' Priam looked down at the heap of blood and bones that used to be his son and said nothing. The End Hi, I'm Juliet Harrison and welcome to episode two of Creepy Classics. This is the podcast where I retell ancient, medieval or early modern ghost stories in a modern format. Uh, and then I have a quick chat about the story, how I've adapted it and the historical background to it. This is a very different type of story from the one I did last month. Uh, the month of November is in the UK a month for remembrance for the war dead, so I thought I would do a war-themed story. The biggest challenge with this was cutting it down. Um, unlike most ancient ghost stories, which are you know, short bits of folklore similar to modern oral ghost folklore, this is part of a huge myth cycle, and everybody in ancient Greece would have been familiar with all the different details and variations of this story. So the whole story of the Trojan War is something that they would have known from early childhood with all its various bits and pieces of, of detail. This story comes from Homer's epic poem, The Iliad. The Iliad tells a story that takes place over a few days within the last year of the Trojan War, which lasts 10 years. And the story in some ways reflects 
elements of the whole Trojan War cycle, um, but tells a story within that cycle. So there's so much detail, there's so much background to this. And trying to cut it down to a short story format that would be self-contained and that would make sense in itself, even if you know almost nothing about the background, was a big challenge. I've made a few changes to the story in the process of adapting it. Hopefully you get the gist of the background from my version. Basically, Achilles is refusing to fight because he's had an argument with the Greek leaders. Patroclus, uh, who is Achilles' companion, has borrowed Achilles' armour and gone in to fight instead of him. And Patroclus has been killed by the Trojan prince Hector. Achilles then is absolutely furious. He goes back into battle he fights and kills Hector and he abuses Hector's body. I've taken out most of the direct actions of the gods from the Iliad. So in, in the poem, Apollo removes Achilles' armour from Patroclus in battle. Achilles' mother, who is a goddess called Thetis, preserves Patroclus's corpse. And it's Thetis who asks Achilles to ransom Hector's body when the other gods tell her to. So I've made the, the weird preservation of both bodies just mysterious and unexplained in the story, that's the gods, and I've given the job of persuading Achilles to ransom Hector's body to Patroclus rather than Thetis to keep it contained. I was really trying to focus my story on those four figures, Achilles, Patroclus, Hector um, and Priam. I've changed Patroclus' funeral quite a bit. Um, in the Iliad, there are funeral games. There is a suggestion of human sacrifice at one point. Um, it's not quite certain whether Achilles goes through with that, but that does come up a few times. I've removed all the women. Um, Achilles' slave Briseis mourns for Patroclus in the poem. I've basically taken every woman out of my version, um, which means it horribly fails the Bechdel test. But the position of women in the Iliad is so problematic that in order to make a satisfying and emotional modern story where you can properly empathise with the protagonists and to make it a short story, I decided to just remove them rather than try to deal with uh, the position of women where the reason Achilles falls out with the Greek lords in the first place is that they have stolen Briseis, his slave, his prize. And he sees Briseis really as nothing more than a trophy. She mourns for Patroclus because she says Patroclus treated her well. Uh, but her relationship with Achilles is barely a relationship. He uses her. At one point, Agamemnon tries to make it up with him by giving her back. And he says no, because the point is that Agamemnon had uh, injured his honour. He's not concerned for the well-being of Briseis as a person at all. So rather than try and incorporate all of that very alien attitude into an ancient story, I got rid of Briseis. And then I got rid of Thetis because I was getting rid of the gods. Uh, so I was left with a story with absolutely no women in it whatsoever. <laughs> but uh, it is uh, a war story. There were women involved in ancient warfare in various ways, but the business of soldiers, of fighting on the battlefield, is primarily men, so I thought, okay, fine, we'll just 
this month's story is about men. There'll be other stories about women other months. I had Patroclus' body washed in the sea rather than in boiling water, just for the artistic effect. Uh, I wanted his body washed in the salty waters of the sea instead. I put Patroclus' body right in Achilles' tent and had Achilles try to embrace it. Initially, when I came to write the story, I'd actually thought that was in the Iliad, and when I went back to the poem, I couldn't find it. Uh, I think what's happened is that has been an alteration another author has made. I suspect it might have been Madeline Miller in The Song of Achilles. Um, I read that a few years ago and I borrowed it from somebody else, so I, I don't have my own copy to look it up. I think possibly that's where I got that from. I've basically misremembered it from another retelling, but I liked it. I thought it was a good detail. Uh, the gods have made the body not smell, so it's doable. Uh, so I went with it uh, and I put the body right in the tent. It was also because part of how I tried to focus this down to a short story was to really focus on the bodies. My entire uh, kind of theme for this story is the physicality of the dead body and contrasting that with the total lack of physicality of the ghost. So it suited what I was doing with it to put the body right in the tent. And for the same reason, I've conflated bits of book 24 with bits of book 23 from the Iliad, uh, and I've brought Priam right in before Patroclus' body has been burned, uh, because I've put together the elements of the end of the Iliad that are focused on the bodies uh, and the treatment of the bodies. I've also lifted Thersites from earlier in the poem. Thersites, much earlier in the Iliad, tries to stand up to Odysseus and speak up for the common soldiers and gets hit on the head for it. Uh, so I moved him over here, um, put him with Achilles and gave him uh, a slightly better role as the kind of leader of the, the non-elite men of the soldiers, as opposed to the lords who are, we mostly hear about in the poem. And I was trying to include some acknowledgement of non-elite fighters by doing that as well. I also left out Patroclus' ghost reciting his life story, uh, again partly because I was really trying to pare down the enormous amounts of detail. Homer refers to this backstory that he's assuming his audience already knows, whereas I would be introducing masses of backstory not knowing whether my audience already know it or not, and to have a ghost turn up uh, to talk to his companion and then just blether on about his life story just didn't seem like it was going to work that well. So I really wanted to focus on their relationship. Now, I've said companion a couple of times in reference to Achilles and Patroclus' relationship. In Homer, their relationship is ambiguous. They might be lovers, the way Achilles tosses and turns, unable to sleep, because he misses Patroclus so much, the depth of his grief. He wails, he tears his hair out, almost like a woman's mourning ritual. That might be meant to imply that they're lovers. It may be that they are tentmates, that they are very, very close battle companions. Homer is never specific about it. Now, for later Greeks, they assumed that they were lovers. Uh, in classical Greece, it was common for men to have relationships with younger men. These were kind of mentoring educational relationships. 
And then in some cases, obviously, men would have relationships with uh, men of their own age, um, just like in any period in history. So there was an assumption among later Greeks, because they were used to that custom of these relationships between men, that Achilles and Patroclus were lovers. And the main issue that they argued about was which one of them was younger, because they assumed that one is older and one is younger, because that was their cultural custom. Ancient Greeks also thought that uh, having relationships between soldiers in battle could be beneficial. Uh, if you are in love with the man next to you, you will fight extra hard to protect him. And you will also want to impress him. You'll, you'll want to look good in front of your lover. So you'll fight that much harder because the man next to you in line is so important to you. So... I made the decision to make them unambiguously lovers in my story, and I think hopefully that came through pretty strongly. And I also slightly cheekily included elements of W.H. Auden's Stop All the Clocks at one point, where I talked about time stopping and you can't hear the horses and so on. Um, that was just my attempt at an early hint that I was depicting their relationship as definitely unambiguously sexual and romantic. Key to the ghost story here is the importance of burial for the dead person to access the underworld. So the imagery of the river and the ferryman may be familiar. Uh, the river Styx, which is the river you had to cross to get to the underworld, and the ferryman Sharon, uh, who takes the payment and rows people across. But there is a recurring theme in ancient ghost stories that if you have not been properly buried... You cannot cross over. The ferryman will not take you. So the souls of people who are unburied are forced to haunt the earth as ghosts. They are restless. They are unhappy. And this is why Patroclus' ghost comes to Achilles to beg him to bury him properly. And he comes through a dream. So Achilles is having trouble sleeping and it's just as he falls asleep that Patroclus visits him. So in a modern context, we wouldn't tend to use a dream for a ghost story because we tend to assume that a dream is not real. And if we're telling a ghost story that happens at night, it'll quite often involve people saying, I wasn't asleep, I was awake, it was not a dream. In the ancient world, people viewed things slightly differently. They considered a visitation from a ghost in a dream no less real than seeing a ghost if you're awake. This is partly because they also considered it possible for a god or a divine being to visit you through a dream, that the gods might communicate what they want through a dream, and they might do so by appearing to somebody. And in some cases, you get a combination of the two, where a god will disguise themselves as a dead person and appear to somebody in a dream. It wasn't the only way you could see a ghost. There are ancient ghost stories where people see ghosts while they are awake, and there are even some where they emphasise being awake. But it is a very, very common type of ancient ghost story, and particularly uh, when it's between lovers. Um, it, it's interesting that the, the dream ghost story is quite often used when it's the ghost of a dead lover um, that their, their lover is seeing. And this was basically the subject of my PhD thesis, which was 10 years ago now, and my monograph that came out in 2013, Dreams and Dreaming in the Roman Empire. And 
this is kind of where my research in ancient ghost stories started uh, because I had a, a section in the book talking about dreams uh, and ghost stories, seeing ghosts through dreams uh, and that was what got me really interested in ancient ghost stories and ghost folklore. So this is a story I've been looking at and studying for a really really long time um, but it's also one of my favourites, you know, it's touching, it's romantic um, and I really enjoy the Homeric poems. I wrote my undergraduate dissertation on a comparison of the Iliad, the Odyssey and Beowulf uh, looking at oral history, uh, sorry, looking at oral poetry as a source for ancient history and how we can use it as a source for history. So I've really enjoyed um, rewriting this story, even though I, I might try something with a bit less of a massive epic background to it for the next one. The translation of the Iliad that I used when I was writing my undergraduate dissertation was the translation by Robert Fagels, which is available from Penguin Books. Uh, but there is also uh, a good, modern, up-to-date translation available for free online. It's available at A.S. Klein's website, poetryintranslation.com. I use this website all the time. The translations are brilliant. They're really good and they're really readable. Uh, and the Iliad is translated by George Theodoridis, and I apologise if I've mispronounced that name. I hope you've enjoyed this story. I will be back next month uh, with another ancient medieval or early modern ghost story retold. And thank you for listening. Creepy Classics is written and performed by Juliet Harrison. Music composed and performed by Ed Harrison. It's produced by Juliet Harrison with assistance from Newman University.